Thank you, Gabe, and good morning, everybody. Um, I just quickly wanted to remind you, invite you to uh, the services upcoming this week. We're having a service Thursday evening called a Maundy Thursday service. That word Maundy comes from this Latin word mandatum. It's, it's Latin for commandment, and it's celebrating what Christ said at the Last Supper, a new commandment I give to you. And during that service, the staff some of the staff and a few of the elders will be serving you in a very special way. That's Thursday at 7, Good uh, Friday service at 7 p.m., and then the Easter services next Sunday. Hope you can make it. So over the past like couple years, two to three years, a term, actually it's a phrase, keeps popping up. And it's a way of describing how some Christians relate to their politics and to their faith. And it was especially prominent around January 6th of last year when they had the, the riots, and many of those rioters were interestingly carrying Christian symbols. They were carrying crosses. They were carrying signs that said, Jesus saves. And the term is Christian nationalists. It's not good. And uh, it's different than Christianity. It's different than patriotism. It's a different term altogether, and it's, it's notoriously difficult to get your arms around. Sometimes it's unfairly applied to Christians who love their country, but that's not what Christian nationalism is. See, patriotism is when you love your country. Christianity is simply when you follow Jesus Christ, become a child of His, Christian nationalism goes further. And the best definition I've found for this is from a man, his name is Paul Miller. He heads up something called the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. It's an entity within the Southern Baptist Convention. He defines Christian nationalism this way. He says, it is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Now, it goes on to express that Christian nationalism is the belief that America is more special to God than other countries. In a sense, it's like America has become the new Israel. And oftentimes, Old Testament passages are, are plucked out, meant to apply to Israel. They bring those in. It's brought in a description of the United States. Now, at some point, I'm going to say most of us, if not all of us, have believed this. As a matter of fact, growing up where I did, I actually made my, you could say, Christian nationalism like a subset of the country, like it was more about the Southeast. We had some kind of a special covering from God, and certain things didn't befall us. Now, that's ridiculous. It's the belief that America, again, is more special to God and it makes the intertwining or conflation of faith and politics nearly indistinguishable from each other. Now, that may sound good on one level. But see, it leads to bad things. And it's been tried before. It was tried under something called the Holy Roman Empire, where they tried to legislate Christianity. As a matter of fact, it was by law, you had to be a Christian. And remember those things called the Crusades. Convert or die. It's when you're seeking primarily to gain power in the public square 
And whether or not Christ is made known doesn't matter all that much. What I want to talk about today is how do I love my country without compromising my primary allegiance to Christ? And yes, you don't have the date wrong. It's Palm Sunday. And the text we're going to look at, we'll see how difficult it was for a group of supposed Christ followers who had a strong sense of nationalism to understand exactly what Christ's mission was. If you would, please stand with me with a reading of God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Please follow along. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. May be seated. We're on our way to the cross and the empty tomb. We have much to learn And this season always fills us with a hope that we need to have all year long, that Christ reigns, that he's on his throne. And even in the middle of what seems like completely chaotic times we're living in, Christ is with us. Christ is with us in the chaos. This morning, I want to go about our topic this way. First, we'll ask, what kind of king is Jesus. And then we'll focus on the followers and some of the confusion they had, what kind of motives they had. Then we'll talk about how we can be a Christian patriot. What does that mean? What does it look like? Then let's look at this, look at Christ and ask that question, what kind of king is Jesus? Last week we looked at the death and resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And this Resurrection caused an uproar among those Jews seeking to kill Jesus. And right after the events of Lazarus' resurrection, look at what these Jews were saying back in chapter 11, 47 and 48. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, you have to remember all the time these places and events are taking place uh, during a time of Roman occupation. This whole land we're talking about is under Roman authority. And these Pharisees, these leaders, are terrified that the attraction that Jesus is bringing to himself is going to cause these Romans to storm in and tear things down, to tear it apart. And they don't know quite what to do about it. They think if they kill Jesus, it'll bring things to a halt. And all that unwanted attention on this little Jewish province in this massive Roman Empire will go away. They won't lose their temple. That's their place 
or their whole country. So they believe that Jesus needs to die to prevent that from happening. But if we look in the verses that come just before the ones we just read, we see they had plans to kill Lazarus as well. That's how far they're willing to go to prevent Jesus from spreading his fame and his authority. Too many people were following him. Then we come to the text we read today. It's a story that you're probably familiar with. If you grew up in church, Palm Sunday, we hand out the palm branches. We, we, we wave them during certain times. And a large crowd had gathered. They were on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. That would include many people from Galilee where Jesus had had his greatest following. And this would have blown up the town of Jerusalem. It would have become much, much larger during this time. It could have grown to probably uh, 100 to 120,000, where it was ordinarily about 50,000. That was more than one city could house. So people would go, they would camp out in the neighboring hills and countrysides. And all of these people present made it harder and harder for the Pharisees to act. How are we going to carry out the plans that we have? And the people were singing praises to Jesus' name. We get to verse 13. We see the people are waving those palm branches in the air. This has actually become a... As a matter of fact, go ahead and wave those palm branches. This would become common at this time uh, during a Jewish feast. Now, it's very interesting why they would do this. You're very good at that, by the way. Good job. I'm feeling a nice breeze coming up here. It's a little warm. It's making it a little breezy. Palm branches were a sign of Jewish nationalistic hope. They desperately wanted to be restored to what they had been. They wanted to be God's powerful nation again. From time to time, they would get into battles with the Romans. And then they would oftentimes print their own coins. And you can see even on the Jewish coins, they would put pictures of palms. So this was a sign, waving it was a sign of national hope. This was actually a lot like the 4th of July, Passover. Uh, Passover, if you remember, was when the Jews were liberated from Egypt. The angel of death passed over any Jewish home that had put blood on the doorway. And that's eventually what led to their leaving Egypt. So again, this is a lot like Independence Day for the Jewish nation. They were, it's like us celebrating the 4th of July, our independence from Britain. So they were eager. They were excited. And as they waved their palm branches in the air, they shouted, Hosanna. It's a lot like us waving an American flag, the waving of the palm branch. Shouting Hosanna, waving the palm branch. It's a Hebrew phrase meaning give salvation now. Lord, save us now. But probably one of the most important questions we can ask is what exactly did they believe Jesus came into town to save them from? That's one of the most important questions we can ask of this text. They wanted out from under the oppression they were feeling. And then shouting what they did in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. But what kind of king is this? To them, it was a political king. Jesus was going to come in to supplant the Romans. No longer would the Caesar be in charge. 
No longer would Herod be in charge. They also aren't fully understanding what it is they're witnessing. And we get to verses 14 and 15. And find out this is a fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. It says there, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. This is significant, the manner in which he entered. The Romans were familiar with this. If a Roman general had conquered a a tremendous amount of their enemies, say more than something like 5,000, they would ride back into Rome on a big white horse. Chained behind them were the captives from the place that they had just conquered. They would go to the Colosseum, and those captives oftentimes were going to be fighting wild animals in the Colosseum. That was a triumphant entry. The general would do this. Now we have something going on that's much different, but has a parallel. Now, the Romans would have laughed at what Jesus was doing. He wasn't coming on a horse. He was a king coming on a donkey. Now, that indicated a time of peace. Had he rode in on a horse, it would have been a time of war. But he's coming in on a donkey. The phrase, do not fear, comes from Isaiah 40, uh, verse 9. Daughter of Zion is a reference to the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel. And look at the entirety of what it says back in Zechariah in that prophecy. So this writing in, again, it would have been like a ticker tape parade, the Roman general coming in. And this passage says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now listen to how he's coming. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that was one of the Jewish tribes, and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, wait a second. This was all foretold. The manner in which Christ was going to come in. And it was a time when the Jews would prefer the time of war, but that's not what they're going to get because they don't really understand what the true battle is. They knew they were oppressed, but they had no idea what the true oppression was. The oppression was sin, not the Romans. This scene's full of imagery, the palm trees, the, the palms waved in the air. All this is going down Kind of like what we saw right after the miraculous feeding by the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus performed that miracle, he fed 5,000 people, a few fish and a a few loaves. And after the people witnessed that miracle, what happened in chapter 6, verse 15? Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This isn't the first time that people had a notion that this man should be king. We can see he's powerful. But he's coming on a donkey, a king on a donkey. They want to force him to define his mission and work politically, to become a king who will rival the Romans. And Jesus says, I want no part of that kingship. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm not going to be tempted by the kingdoms of this world. That's what Satan did. So he fled that situation. He he fled away. He got away from these political ambitions of the crowd. The crowd made demands that he would not meet. He would not be the bringer of war they wanted him to be. They wanted him to come in powerfully. 
ready to kill. You may know the name uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. He was actually a, a Renaissance area. He was an era philosopher and politician and writer. And his writings greatly influenced how we do political science today. As a matter of fact, he wrote a book called The Prince. And he said, if you are going to rule, you have got to be ruthless and tyrannical and not empathetic. Sounds great, doesn't it? And he said, if you're going to rule, you can never be devoted to acting nicely and and you've got to use every trick in the book, and you've got to act like the most dastardly, unscrupulous, and nastiest people who have ever lived. He said it would be counterproductive to act nicely. As a matter of fact, I know where people get this idea, Machiavelli said. He said they get this idea of being nice and scrupulous from Jesus. He, was, he described him as this very nice man from Galilee who always treated people well. But he knew nice guys finished last. And he pointed out the inconvenient detail to this tale of triumph and goodness through meekness. Because practically, he said, Jesus' life was a disaster. The gentle soul was trampled on, humiliated, disregarded, mocked, judged in his lifetime and outside of any divine assistance. He called him one, this man called Jesus one of history's greatest losers. But what he didn't get what he failed to take into account was that Jesus was not always going to be the lamb. Someday he'll come back as the lion. And he rode in on that donkey, but he's going to come back on a war horse, a great white war horse. But he was exalted by the Father because of his willingness to humble himself and take on the form of a servant. So God came in peace to Jerusalem. Someday he'll return on his war horse. For now, he's on the donkey. So then what about the crowd? What about the crowd and what about their motives? Well, his disciples were there, but they didn't really get what was going on, the text tells us. They won't understand what happened until Christ was resurrected. They're questioning what's going on. Others had come along because they had heard about the raising of Lazarus. Then there were the Pharisees, and their biggest concern was that someone would acknowledge Jesus as a national Savior. That was their biggest fear. Because then what would the Romans do? They didn't want that attention. But the crowd tries to fit Jesus into their religious categories and decide that they can control and promote. And they want Jesus for their own ends. They want to pursue a political agenda, maybe a revolution or social dissent or upheaval. But Christ never promised them or us that we would ever live in a national situation that would be friendly to Christianity. We never get that promise. That's why we have to be so careful of this, this nationalism that we're some kind of Christian nation. We're not. And in the world, the kingdom of God is here in the sense that Christians are here. And part of the problem is these Jews and their intense desire to have God's kingdom right now. And I get it. I want God's kingdom right now. It pushed them to make Jesus a national savior. They perversely tried to push Christ into a national Savior instead of a Savior from their sins. But see, both they and us have to be patient for our Savior to come back. Things will be made right. But we're not in... <clears throat> 
speaking of our country, we're not in a special covenant with God. The United States of America is not in some special covenant with God. That we can take Old Testament passages applied to Israel and think that they apply to us. We're not the new Israel. And we don't legally try and force people to become Christians. That doesn't work. Rome tried that. It doesn't work. I don't think people should be put into prison for denying the Trinity. But we want the kingdom now. And love of country is important for any civilized society. Don't get me wrong. But our ultimate hope is God's kingdom and not an earthly one. So the question comes in, well, how then do I love my country? How do I love it? How can I be a a Christian patriot that doesn't fall into the kind of trap that these Jews fell in this time when Christ came into the city? I want to suggest four ways. First of all, by advancing principle over power. Advancing principle over power. Being power-hungry for anything does not work with our Christian faith. An example Christ gave us to follow was one of self-sacrifice. It was a man by the name of Walt. His name's Walt Wangren. He was a writer. He's a theology professor. He's a Lutheran pastor. He wrote about this, about, <clears throat> about this idea of, of Christians craving power. He said, sacrifice is a, is a word a power-hungry church doesn't understand A church that cares about power, the power of a large membership, power in the world, political power, television power, persuasive opinion power, doesn't know the principle of sacrifice. Far too many Christians have neglected, even repudiated the example of Jesus Christ, who eschewed coercion in favor of quiet persuasion, and whose method of acting was his willingness to die for those who would not die. When Christianity seeks to arrogate power to enforce its righteous principles on the whole world, it is in no way dying. It's in no way sacrifice. Did Christ ever seek to gain power? What else? Secondly, engage Christianly in the political process. Now, there is a place for Christians to engage in politics in America. It's a beautiful thing. We've got free speech. We've got democracy. So there's a place to engage and influence politics, either by entering into politics. And we need Christian politicians. Contacting Congress people. Even just making an informed vote. Making an informed vote. Then third, don't expect primacy in the public square. Don't expect primacy in the public square. And I think this may go to the heart of the matter. At one time, Christians in America had the place of primacy. And we expected we'd never lose it, but that's the problem of expectations. If you expect it, how far will you go to keep it? When you expect something, you don't think you'll lose it. On January 6th, when those men and women stormed that Capitol building in D.C., many of them were carrying crosses. Many of them were carrying signs that said, Jesus saves. And I love how Paul Miller says this. Again, the, the, read a quote from him in the very beginning. He wrote this in an article in Christianity Today. He said, normal Christian political engagement is humble, loving, and sacrificial. It rejects the idea that Christians are entitled to primacy of place in the public square or that Christians have a presumptive right to continue their historical predominance in American culture. 
I think he nailed it. And then finally, be humble. Regardless of what somebody else believes, treat them as better than yourself. Paul said it in Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Others. He's talking about everybody. So putting this all together, I want to suggest two, two ways to wrap this up. First of all, be a Christian patriot, not a Christian nationalist. And advance Christ's kingdom by following Christ's example of gentleness and humility in a hostile world. I want to close because I think that uh, I think this, this lady got it right. You may know who uh, Kay Warren is. She's wife of Pastor Rick Warren from Saddleback. And she described a moment when she was passing through the Dallas-Fort Worth airport, and she was getting there at a time when soldiers were returning. And she talks about that moment, seeing those soldiers return. Somebody came and grabbed her and said, hey, would you want to join in in welcoming? And and she did. She grabbed a a flag, and they were waving those soldiers in, and they were cheering for those soldiers, and they were overcome with emotion. Many of those soldiers were crying. And it was such a powerful moment, yelling, welcome home, we're glad you're back. She said at the end of it, when they got in their plane, we sank into our seats, and we felt humbled, participating in this, this sweet moment. They couldn't help but see the spiritual parallels. Talking about the soldiers, they fought courageously, lived with deprivation, danger, disease, took unbelievable risks, all for the good of our nation. And she said, but as great as America is, it's a temporary place. She said, no nation lives forever. As believers in Christ, we are all soldiers in the Lord's army. We too take oaths of fidelity and sacrifice and service. Our oaths of allegiance are to a kingdom that shall never end. A country where there is never a mistaken leadership. Where justice flows down like a river. Where poverty, disease, terror, hunger, and greed will hold no power. And Scripture teaches us that we will too will have that kind of a welcome home when we get to our heavenly home. Artists, writers, and theologians, they all take stabs at imagining what that moment would be like, visualizing we will step into eternity into our heavenly home. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you so much that you came to set up a kingdom. Lord, you inaugurated a kingdom that is already and not yet. And Lord Jesus, we humbly submit to you. And I pray that we would be good Christian patriots that love our country, but at the same time accept that there will be times when it does not go our way, that we would not lose our testimony, Lord, as we seek to influence the political system, that we would not forget our true identity is in you, and not our earthly kingdom, but in a kingdom that has no end. Thank you, Jesus, for sacrificing yourself for us. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.